This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash Sermon on the Mount. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Southern Seminary. The pastors of tomorrow won't need less theological training. They'll need more. That's why Southern exists, to provide deep, rich, and strong ministry preparation that endures. Southern Seminary, trusted for truth. Learn more at sbts.edu. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on helping unbelievers doubt their doubts. It was recorded at our 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. Panelists are Sam Alberry, Craig Ellis, Bethany Jenkins, and Stephen Um. So we're here to talk about helping doubters doubt their doubts um, and helping curious Christians um, figure out how to navigate through those waters, too. Um, I first wanted to ask a really brief question to kind of ask each of you to answer. Why are you here in this session? Like, what makes you uniquely suited to talk about this topic? Maybe just a, a minute or two on... Why, why this topic matters to you. Uh, I have no idea why I'm in here, but I, one of the reasons I'm interested in this it's is It's the British accent, for um, sure. I, I, was converted, I was converted when I turned 18, and that was, that was late enough in life that I can still remember what it feels like to be an unbelieving adult. And um, I come from a culture that is very skeptical of the Christian faith in the UK, and... There's an inner skeptic in me. I'm naturally skeptical. So I don't just like someone saying, I will believe this because I've told you to. I'm always thinking, no, you need to, I'm sorry, you've got to persuade me on this. So I have a naturally skeptical mindset anyway. And therefore, I, I have a natural antennae for when I feel in church something isn't really being, I'm not being persuaded. Things are just being asserted. I'm not being persuaded. And coming from a culture, a family, lots of friends who are are not Christians, I really want churches to be places where I'll be unembarrassed to bring them and where they will feel as though their scepticism is respected, where they were anticipated, uh, and where they will feel as though their questions are 
taken seriously and given credible answers to. Um, so I, I had the opposite background growing up, so I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Um, but I think probably the best thing that my parents did for me was actually encourage me to be skeptical of my own beliefs, like to explain, understand like why it is that you think what you think. And so I, even though I grew up in a Christian home, I that had that same kind of thing of always being a little bit skeptical about it. And at first, that, that, that worked out really well for my parents. They were glad to see me like going to conferences and trying to learn things and everything until I started really personally doubting what I, what I had been taught and believed. And then <laughs> I remember this, this time where my mom came in, and I guess I don't even remember, remember this exactly, but she said that she found me. I was actually crying because I was, and she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I just don't know if I believe this anymore. And, um, and she said, well, you know, Craig, like, isn't it really, even if it's not true, is it that bad to be a Christian? I mean, isn't it an okay life? And I said, Paul said, if Christ be not raised, then we are to be most pitied. And so, like, yes, it is that big of a deal to live your life for a lie. And she was like, okay, yeah, that's great. Um, and so, I, so that's always that skepticism and, like, trying to understand understand these things that I think has been a part of me growing up. And so I, I naturally feel at home with people who you feel like you're having it. You don't have to first convince them that they don't believe the gospel before you can then talk about the gospel. They already know they don't believe the gospel. And so I, I like starting in that spot. So I grew up in New England and received most of my formal uh, education in the Boston area. So I've always wrestled with a culture of ideas and now I'm a pastor. Uh, in Center City, Boston, and um, as, as Sam was saying, I've always uh, struggled with trying to find a point of reference, uh, a, a point of contact with our secular culture and trying to understand how a, a Christian gospel worldview um, can speak into, into that. And so I, I was a skeptic for most of my life, and then in college, um, I heard the gospel and, and got converted and, and uh, started on a new uh, faith journey. But um, I've always had a burden uh, for that um, because I think that we need to we need to explain things. We need to be able to speak intelligibly uh, to people who have good, meaningful questions. And I'm sure that's what Bethany's going to ask now. Um, what are the ways that we will be uh, more open and welcoming uh, to people who have different faith assumptions uh, than we do? That was a little bit of a spoiler alert, and I'm not getting there yet. <laughs> Bethany, why are you here? <laughs> Let's ask you the first question. I grew up with a father who was an attorney. I'm, a, I'm an attorney. Many people in my family are attorneys. And so you always, as a, when it, as a daughter of an attorney, you always have to have good arguments for both sides. And so I remember very much going home from church one Sunday and saying and telling my dad it was, it was a sermon that I thought was very much feeding us what we should think, and it, I didn't agree with it. I grew up really, really thinking um, just because someone is in a leadership position doesn't mean necessarily they are um, the end-all be-all of truth. And so he kind of, and he raised me, he, by the way, he was a deacon of a Southern Baptist church. He wouldn't sign the agreement that not to drink because even though my dad didn't drink, he said Jesus couldn't sign this agreement, so I'm not going to. They still made him a deacon. He was a very well-respected member of the community, so he taught me how to live in an institution even if you disagreed with part of it and even serve it. And so for me, that was a great way. To, that That's how I always have approached my faith is I can strongly believe, but 
actually questioning doesn't mean you don't believe. And so that's kind of how I grew up. So that's what I would say. Um, first question I'd love for you guys to talk about. I think that some people have straw man arguments about Christ the Christian faith. And those can be talked about pretty, I don't want to say easily, but those are pretty familiar. I would love each of you to take one of the most common, true, and actually hard objections that you've had that people come to you and you're like, I'm not actually sure um, about how to answer this, um, this objection to the Christian faith. There are lots of them. I would love to know in y'all's ministries and your work, one of them that you've, um, that you've confronted that's just been hard. I think one of the things I, I find most challenging, and it, it's been a more recent objection, and it's becoming very common now, is that people have often thought Christianity was was a bit quaint, you know, there, there, you've got your little faith kind of thing. Increasingly, what we're seeing in more secular contexts is people saying to us, actually, your faith is a danger. It's a danger to society. And... That's a kind of new space for us to be in. We're used to kind of being looked down on and, and kind of slightly patronized, perhaps. I don't think we're used to, to feeling like we're the enemy. People used to say, I don't like Christianity because it's too moral. Now they're saying, I don't like Christianity because it's too immoral. And whether it's people saying Christianity is responsible for, for gay teenagers committing suicide or whether it's it fosters intolerance, those arguments carry far more emotional force than some of the previous objections I would have dealt with 10, 15 years ago. If I could just uh, piggyback on that, that's, that's very helpful, Sam. Uh, so it's a different epistemological framework, the, the way we kind of figure out what we know. And um, of course, uh, we've had major cultural shifts. And the cultural shifts in the past would take about 20, 30 years. But now, like these things are happening in two to three years. and and uh, sorry to promote this book, but Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, is very, very helpful for those of you if you want to understand uh, what's going on, especially uh, in, in institutions, uh, higher education, especially at universities. And, and so what you find uh, in, in his research and his writings uh, will be exactly what Sam, Sam said. So that it's not just that we are the prophetic minority but we are a, a potential threat. And so, so we are not able to enter into uh, conversation in, the, in having public discourse in, in the public arena because we are injecting a, a view that is harmful. Not, not perceived, uh, not, not, not real harm from our perspective, but it is perceived harm from the person who's receiving it. So, so we would have to give trigger warnings before we speak and talking anything about religion because people can interpret that as microaggression uh, to anyone who disagrees with us. And so therefore, the, the, the context is not safe. And, um, and so I think that this is just a, a big framework that we have to, rather than talk about a particular issue, we don't, we're not even uh, allowed um, uh, to be able to enter into this uh, conversation. I, this this one is is not a really um, explicit objection. It's actually just more the the presence of indifference. Uh, how often I'm having a conversation with someone who really doesn't have 
or at least believes that they don't have any felt need for anything, right? Life is going pretty good. Um, they're relatively successful. They're, you know, things are moving ahead. Um, and there's just a real indifference there. Um, and so I remember, I remember years ago, uh, listening to a, a well-known evangelist get asked this question, like, what, you know, what do you do when someone is indifferent to the gospel? And, and the response was like, well, you, was basically, I don't know. You just have to wait until something bad happens in their life, and, and then you can you know, be there for them. And um, I, I, f- I found that dissatisfying. You know? um, is that all we, can, we really can do in the face of indifference is just wait and hope that something bad happens? And I, I think that what, what we need to learn, one of the challenges, is learning how to, to challenge the, the, the way that they're already answering these kind of questions and deep needs that they have. They have these deep needs for significance and for meaning and for validation, and, and they are finding them in places. And that's why they think that they're really indifferent. They don't need anything, anything else. And so figuring out where those places are that you can actually push in a little bit, a little bit further, um, I, I think is, is for me one of the challenges because you really have to kind of get to, really have to get to know somebody pretty well, you know, to be able to start asking those questions. Uh, so a, uh, like a recent conversation I, I had with someone uh, along these lines was him saying, he had a very interesting background and so I just kind of asked the question like, well, how has that experience shaped your identity of like kind of who you are? And he's like, yeah, that's really interesting. And he said, you know, I've, I, what I've done is, is, you know, to try to, I've tried to narrow my identity, is what he said. He said, because I want to, you know, I know that if my identity is in my work, for example, then if something happens to my job, and then I, you know, I, I would be crushed. So what I've done is I've really focused on my family, right? If I'm a good father and if I'm a good husband, then, like, I know everything is okay. And... What I did is I said, you know, it's interesting. I, I more often hear people say that they need to diversify their identity so that if any one piece of it goes wrong, then they're still okay. And I said, but so it sounds to me like you've actually just chosen to place it in some place else where all of these things are equally risky. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? So it's trying to go after. We have this and we get, we get these things. We think we're all satisfied um, and pushing on those a little bit. Let me push back. This is not an anticipated question that I sent you guys. Let me push back a little bit on um, what you just said, Craig, to get some thoughts. I, I feel like there is a felt need right now, especially among younger generations in terms of, for the first time, um, suicide rates um, have skyrocketed. Um, I work with universities. Uh, one of the top liberal arts universities, an administrator told me that 25% of the students at this school identify as having suicidal ideation. Um, that's huge. Um, so it feels like there is a felt need. They're just not finding the gospel or Christianity as a place where they can go to to answer that felt need. Do you think that the commonality, but do you think that that's where the break is between what you're saying and what Sam is saying, basically? Like yeah. that because it's a weapon, it's, not, it's actually not good news. Yeah. So uh, psychologists, moral psychologists have observed, and this is through, through research and data, analysis that uh, that this new generation, so those who have been born between 1997 or 95 to 2007, th- these are not millennials, right? So the ones who are first and second year students in college, they're iGens, or some people refer to them as, 
Gen Z and uh, Gene Twenge's book, iGens, is an excellent resource excellent. if you're interested. But, but what they have observed is this. They said, this is the generation that grew up with social media, right? 2006 or seven, iPhone. 2006, Facebook. Uh, Twitter, 2006 or seven, and then Instagram, 2010, and Snapchat, 2011. So they know of TikTok, no other. They know of no other reality. And, and especially for young women, because they are more, uh, more in danger of being influenced by a social aggression online, uh, that they have noticed that this increase from 1997, or, or from 2007, has skyrocketed in terms of uh, having um, harmful su suicidal ideation and, and um, being concerned about their image, right? And so, so I do believe that if we are able to assess people and to recognize that we all, as a humanity, we, we all struggle with uh, problem emotions, right? Whether it's boredom or irritability or, or uh, anxiety or anger or what are some of the other ones? Uh, insecurity or despair. And, and so when we struggle with all of these things, we have to follow the problem emotions and they'll ultimately go down deeper into deeper uh, idols as approval, comfort, power, influence, or, or, or control. And, and I believe that the gospel narrative is the only non-totalizing mega story that can speak into that because this generation doesn't want any totalizing uh, narrative. In other words, they don't want a, a coherent, they want a coherent story, but they don't want an oppressive mm -hmm. coherent story. So they don't want people to tell us any form of uh, authority telling us to do this or do that. So, so they want a, a non-totalizing or non-oppressive, and the only one that's emancipatory in that sense is, is the gospel. So I, I believe that we can bring the gospel message to speak into these problem emotions uh, relating to all of the, the high increase of, of a mental disorder. And, and, and as Jonathan Haidt says, an extremely over-fragile, over-fragile, uh, um, over fragile, over safety emphasizing uh, a generation. I was just going to add to that. I think, I mean, Christianity has amazing resources, doesn't it? For the, you know, we've got the most anxious generation in history um, graduating high school. And from, from this point of view, you know, Jesus is the safest person, uh, and his people should be um, the one who will not break a bruised reed. So I, th I think, again, the, the resources of our faith, I think, give us unique opportunities to serve into this kind of generation. It's not going to be easy because at some point they, they have to encounter a call to repentance. But hopefully they're, they're doing that having discovered one who knows them better than they know themselves and who still pursues them and wants them. I was going to ask... Uh, what naturally falls into this is how do you create a community that actually is that is what marks a community that is open and hospitable to both curious people who are not sure yet what they believe but also identifying christians who are actually not sure that that's where they're going to land so how do you what are some things that your churches do or that you've heard of other churches do that actually create an environment um, that fosters curiosity and inquiry a couple of quick thoughts i think it, it's it's trying to have a culture isn't it so it's not that there's one thing you do and that's what happens it's 
is trying to create that culture where we're not giving off this constant signal of, well, of course, this is what sensible people like us believe, as if it's the most obvious thing. We want to recognise that we, we get that people don't believe this and we get why people don't believe this. Um, something I've, I've sometimes encouraged pastors to do, this is very weird, um, but bear with me. Um, I've sometimes said to pastors, go and get a pedicure. <laughs> and what I want you to do is track how you feel walking into that place, having that sense of I've no idea what I'm supposed to do in here. Everyone can tell I don't belong here. I don't know how this works. Because that is how, that is how a skeptic is going to feel walking into your church. So what is the most you can do to reduce that feeling and give as many signals as possible that, hey, if you don't believe any of this, if you think we're crazy, you've made the right decision by coming here. Actually, that was a good, that was a good move. We were expecting you all this time, and we're so glad you're here. Rather than giving off, you know, that the gospel is allowed to cause offence, but we mustn't. So it's trying to, it's trying to show that we've actually we've laid out a red carpet for skeptics. Um, that we, we've always known they were there. We want them to feel visible, understood, anticipated, and that we respect them. The last time I was in a mini lux salon, uh, <laughs> I have, uh, I have uh, three adult daughters. And so they were very welcoming. I felt very welcomed <laughs> there. Um, <laughs> you can show us your feet yeah. later on. Um, but I would say this, here are some practical things that we do at our church, and of course, the Redeemer does a great job at this as well. Uh, we, we catechize, we literally take our staff through this. Anyone who is presiding or even going up there giving announcements, we have to coach them. So we ha they have to always speak intelligibly. That is, don't use tribal jargon, make sure you assume that skeptics are present, don't ever talk to them in the third, talk about them in the third person. Speak directly to them, welcome them, let them know. Define everything that you say. De-Christendomize your lang language, right? I didn't say de-biblicize. People say, hey, so you're not gonna use the word sin? Of course we have to use biblical language. If only churches would use more biblical language. We need to use biblical language, but we have to get rid of the jargon. Okay? And, and whenever we do use biblical language, we define everything. Okay? And be careful that you don't use too many heavy theological terms. And if you have to once in a while, then, then you have to define those terms. So don't whip out eschatological like every other sentence. But, um, but so those things are very helpful. And, and, and so skeptics will come and they'll be like, hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't disagree with, with what you said, but at least you were trying to litigate for your position and to defend your position and, and, and you're trying to winsomely, humbly try to persuade somebody who disagrees with you because you're not going to get militantly opposed atheists, right? You'll have mildly curious skeptics if they even show up. So, so, so people do appreciate that and, and when you're able to uh, speak to them in this, this manner, then, um, then you'll get a hearing. Yeah, I think that that applies also within, and, I, and you didn't mention this because you're the one who's probably doing it, was in the sermon itself right. of sp explicitly speaking, uh, you know, assuming that they're there and explicitly speaking to them 
as if they are there, you know, trusting that they are. Um, the, the other thing, other things that we do, in addition to, like you were explaining the terms that you use, we explain the liturgy that we're going through. So if you look in the bulletin, we actually have on the sides of the bulletin explanations for what we're doing and why we're doing it. That's there for a, a non-Christian to be able to understand what in the world is going on right now. Um, the other thing is, is just the valuing of their, their questions. Uh, I think is is so important. I don't know how many times I've had a, a non-Christian just say, man, I just appreciate that y- you're interested in the questions that I have and, and treat them like as if they weren't an answer. Uh, and so uh, for one way that we try to, like our motto at our church is uh, we value questions and the people who ask them. Um, and after every sermon or after every service, we have a time of Q&R uh, instead of Q and A, it's Q and R because we can guarantee you a response, but not necessarily an answer. Um, but I think that that distinction is important, and it's and it's really valued in saying like, listen, you know, this is not, hey, you come ask this, the question, we'll give you all the answers. Be grateful that we gave you the answers, and then like, you know, either convert or or move on. Um, so you're acknowledging that, hey, we, you know, these are hard questions. We're going to respond and engage with you in, in those things. And we do that every, um, after every service. Uh, the, and then once a month, we hold actually like a panel uh, where instead of the Q&R, we do it as a panel. So we bring in um, other people from our congregation. Like Sam and Bethany. Like <laughs> Sam and Bethany. You know, Sam when he's in town. Um, and or just people who have different perspectives within our congregation. So the types of people that we like to have on the panel, we don't look for all those that, you know, you don't have to have a theological degree, you don't have to be an expert, you don't have to be, what you what is needed are things like, you know, spiritual maturity, you want someone who is, has a, is a lived life of a Christian, um, and you want them to be theologically aware. You, you want them to know before they say something heretical, right? You know, um, but you don't want them necessarily, they don't need to be the expert for all the answers. And, but that they can actually share what is it like as a, you know, a thoughtful Christian who's living this life, my personal felt experiences, which those narratives and those stories are really important um, for non-Christians who are coming and trying to understand what does it look like you know, on your side. I think one other thought I'd, I'd share is that what one step that will help a church towards being a place where skeptics know their questions are respected is if Christians are allowed to ask questions too. If, if Christians can't question or can't doubt or express uncertainty, it's a guarantee no non-Christian is ever going to feel able to do that either. Um, my, my kind of mantra on this is, if it can't be questioned, it's not worth believing. If it's true, it will stand up to scrutiny. So therefore, we're not insecure about exposing our beliefs to scrutiny. Um, we welcome it. Um, if it's true, it will stand up. If it's not true, it's good for us to know that. So um, I think I've seen some churches where there's a culture of this is what we believe, okay? Everyone's got to hold the line. And if people are being told what to think but they're not being taught how to think, if they're believing it because they've been told to believe it, not because they've been led, you know, it's not the spirit that's working with them, it's just this is the party line kind of thing, that is not going to be an evangelistically strong church because actually the faith is going to be very fragile. I'm believing this because Pastor so-and-so told me to. And so when he leaves or you move on to another church, 
then the whole thing can collapse. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's particularly important in the <clears throat> recognizing, you know, majoring in the majors and recognizing the, that there are a lot of areas where there are healthy disagreements within the church on things and modeling that kind of disagreement within the church mm -hmm. so that people who are coming in don't feel like, you know, I, oh, here's the, this long list of things that I have to agree with. Um, and I have to get all the way there in order to, before this Christianity thing is, is a fit for me. Um, and so we modeled that in our kind of Q&A afterward, or Q&R afterwards, yeah, thanks. Um, you know, where we had a question and then, you know, one person answered the question one way and the other person said, well, you know, I kind of um, disagree with that take on it. I have a different take on it. And so there was a little bit of a dialogue. And afterwards, one of the, the people who watched it came up and said, I really appreciate it that you showed that within your, your church that you're allowed to have like healthy disagreements on things and, and have a di discussion around it. You're modeling it, not just saying, you know, we, we want to do it. Yeah, at the Veritas, which is the organization I work at, um, we usually have dialogue. So we have a Christian in conversation with, it's not to be a debate, in conversation with a person from a different worldview. And you, could, you can actually track, we've been around for 25 years, you can track the numbers of the percentage of non-Christians that come when you have two different perspectives in the room skyrockets um, to about 40%. When you only have a Christian presenting the Christian worldview, it's about five to ten percent. It's much smaller because you're, two things are happening. One, you're saying I can see myself represented on that stage in dialogue with Christianity as a skeptic, but also Christianity, but implicitly, which now it's not generally thought, but implicitly, you're putting it on the same footing as another worldview. It's actually being taken seriously in the academy or in dialogue, which leads me to my second question: is so. When we think about Veritas, how do we, we can create a culture. So some of the things we do is we don't ever host events at a church. We always host curious events at a university room or within a university or something like that because just having it at a church in general is going to turn people off or are curious. Um, but we now think a lot about how do you get people in the room. So you can create a, y'all just answered how do you create a culture once they're in the room. I'm wondering from, I'm going to ask this directed to Craig, Craig um, led a, a, a program through Redeemer called the West Side Cafe, where West, it was, you, you can tell them about it, but also I'm wondering, how did you get people to come? Like, so it was basically a cafe for cur people who were curious. You couldn't attend if you were just a Christian by yourself. Um, if you could bring a friend, so some people came, I'm assuming, with friends. Some people just heard about it. It was, it was written up in the New York Times. He hates me for saying that, but you I can read about it. I told you I was going to leave, actually, if you brought that up. <laughs> you can read about it, though, if you want to, the program. But how did you get people to come in the first place, Bef like, which is an important part. You can create something great, but if they're not coming, who cares? <laughs> yeah, okay, so, um, boy. Uh, one is, honestly, part of the reason that I stopped the cafe and moved on to something else was because there weren't enough people coming. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you're asking me a question that actually, if I were to say, what was the, the, my biggest disappointment about it was actually the number of people who, who ended up coming. You know, 20 people a week or something like that. You know, that's, that's okay. I mean, it's not about the numbers, right? But at some point, you're, you're trying to say, like, are we offering something that people actually want? You know, so if nobody comes up, then it is, it is about the numbers, like you said. Um, but so there were things. Here's, so let me split your question into two different yeah. things. 
One is, was what was being offered a good offering? Was it something that, that was desi- desired by those who came? Um, that, the things that we did around that were, we did keep non or Christians from showing up there just for their own kind of personal edification, right? Um, and so I would have conversations with people who would show up and be in, you know, to the group, and I could tell that they were really just there as a Christian to kind of develop their own skills. They, these weren't felt questions for them. I had some Christians who I, we did keep let stay, let stay, um, because these were real issues. They were deeply struggling themselves or wrestling themselves, and that's great. Um, but we, uh, if, if a non-Christian comes into your event and they sense, and they will quickly, that they're one of just the only you know, two, three who are there, and everybody else all believes the same thing, they, this is not, no longer a safe space for them to engage with. And so that was something that, something that we did. The other thing that, that is um, we, the conversations, we actually, even though uh, I didn't bring in other people from different faiths, I made it a point of myself to, in each, in each week, to pre- present, here's a topic that we're discussing, that, and here are lots of different perspectives on it. Right, you know, that, and put those on equal footing and have a discussion. And then I was clear about my job is to kind of bring the Christian perspective on it. So it was creating actually that equal footing space, like what you were talking about. It was creating, keeping in a space where they felt like they were in the majority, or they were in the majority. And so it was a safe space for, the, for them to dialogue. Um, and so the people who came, I felt like th- those were the wins. Um, I was disappointed actually in the number of people who came. Uh, and because actually what I found, even though I was doing it through the church, is that a lot of the people found it on their own, mm-hmm. just online. They would search, they would find, because they're cur- and then those people would show up. But the, the Christians in the church actually weren't having conversations with their non-Christians about faith at all. And so that actually has become the area of my like, current real focus um, in, in New York is how... How do we make that make that happen? Um, and that's that's a whole other topic. And you know, so I'll, so I'll stop there. If you're interested in that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Um, but uh, there you go. When people consider coming to faith, um, or even consider leaving faith, there are lots of genuine. There are several genuine costs that they have to count before they decide to come to faith. I mean, the research out of Fuller Youth Institute says a lot of people's objections are, the reason why they don't really confront their doubts, whether you're coming from a skeptical belief to consider Christianity or a Christian, is the relational fallout. It's actually not much, it's not as much about the intellectual fallout as you think, because you have to think, I'm, if, I, if I'm a skeptical person and I'm considering Christianity, all my friends are going to make fun of me, if I even hint that I'm thinking about it. Um, so they, they end up burying those. And then Christians, the same thing. is like, oh, I'm having doubts. I'd rather just keep them. If I say them out loud, I might lose all my friends. And then they end up completely walking away at the end, at the end of the day because they never have an opportunity to, to like talk about those. When you guys talk with people who are thinking about those genuine, like what are some genuine costs and how do you, how do you, um, how do you reconcile and help people think those through? I'm, in particular, I'm thinking of you, Sam, with your work with same-sex attracted um, individuals who are maybe thinking about Christianity. The, the cost of becoming a Christian 
is so high, I imagine several people say it's really not worth it. Um, and so I'm really, I mean, all of you guys, I would love to hear you just talk about that in general. Like, how do you help somebody consider those and be authentic about those, but also walk through it? I think it's, I mean, it's, in one sense, I'm encouraged when someone is wrestling with that because I'm thinking they've understood the message of Jesus. If it's beginning to feel costly, it's a good chance it's the real gospel that they're, that they're wrestling with. If they're not thinking it's any cost at all, it probably isn't the message of Jesus. And one principle I found helps on particularly issues of sexuality, but any issue where, there's, where it can feel very highly charged is don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. So when someone is saying, but it feels like this is too big of an ask. You know, I'm happy to come to church. I'm happy to believe in God. I'm happy to be religious, whatever they mean by that. I'm not prepared to give up my sexuality. Um, there's a couple of things I want them to know at that point. The first thing I want them to know is Jesus wants way more than your sexuality. I mean, if you thought that was bad enough, <laughs> you haven't heard the half of it yet. He wants your heart. He wants your life. And that's what he wants from everyone. So I want to universalize it and show you're not being singled out for some kind of special, you, you get the really, you know, everyone else gets Diet Coke, you get real Coke or whatever, the, which way around that should be, whichever one is worse in your mind. Um, <laughs> I want people to know that actually the, the cost of discipleship is the same for everyone. The call of Jesus is if anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself is antithetical to secular culture that says you have to fulfill and express yourself. So I want them to know that actually they're not unique in feeling that. That is in fact what lands on every single human being when they encounter the message of Jesus. And yet, Jesus is worth it. So I want to be able to show them in my life, in the life of any other Christian, that they know the same cost, although it will map out in different ways, and why that cost is still worth it. Why people, you know, Jesus says that, but people still follow him because as we deny self, take up our cross and follow Jesus, we actually find we're not losing life, we're gaining life. Uh, we're becoming the people he always had in mind for us to be. So... I'm, I'm always glad when people are realistic about the cost. I think we've been far too consumerist in our evangelism and we've tried to kind of minimise the cost and we've simply said, whatever your issue is in life, Jesus is the solution. Mm -hmm. Whereas Jesus puts the cost up front and says, if you're going to come after me, you need to know this ahead of time. This is what it's going to be like. But I think there's something compelling about that and there's something honest about that that people, people can respect. Um, you know, oftentimes when people think about uh, sin in the Bible, um, when, they, when they try to come up with theological categories for sin, they think that sin is merely defined along the moral axis. Right? It certainly is, right? Right versus wrong. Um, but in the Hebrew, there are at least three unique uh, words for sin. That is why if you go to Psalm 51, they are translated uh, with a different English word, like transgression, iniquity, uh, trespass, sin. Because these are different Hebrew words, and, and, and they're all nuanced. And again, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the moral category, but, 
But the, the primary uh, focus of uh, sin in the Old Testament is actually uh, on, the, on the bondage, slavery, freedom, liberation access. And so, so I believe that when you speak to, to uh, a generation that is overly individualistic, you want to speak into that by saying, why would you want to be enslaved uh, to anything? Why would you want to be enslaved to your tendency of wanting to find a story that's just going to be all-consuming and all about you? And you don't want to be enslaved to that. Therefore, you need to find another story that can free you uh, from that. And, um, and, and I think one of the dangers of a progressive Christianity is that it, it has... It's always trying to find a point of contact with a culture to make Christianity as easy and as comfortable and non-threatening and costly as possible. So if they say, oh, here's a point of reference, and certainly we need to find elements of contact, but, but here's a point of reference, and, um, and, and, and the baseline cultural narrative is all about justice, or therefore I'm going to focus just on justice as if biblical justice is the same thing as social justice. And, um, and, and they fail to realize that the culture has, this is what Keller will say, well, has co-opted or adopted some Christian ideas. And it's feeding into a particular radical individualism, whether on the left or to the right. So if you're on the left and you say, oh, okay, the, 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 the Bible speaks into issues of justice and being concerned about the marginalized, but don't tell me what to do with my body. And if you have, a, uh, have a, an individualism that's on the right, uh, and they have co-opted Christian ideas uh, about uh, being a good person and focusing on the priority of the inner life, um, then that would simply say, well, but don't tell me what to do with my money. And so, so Christianity will always, if you're not assimilating to whatever co-opted version of it, will always be challenging in that sense. It will be costly. You can't just simply assimilate and say, well, this is the easy version that I'm going to take. And, and again, the point of contact would be, uh, why would you want to be enslaved to any sort of narrative uh, that's going to feed your uh, individualism? Wouldn't you want to be a real independent thinker? And I believe that the gospel story allows you to do that. There are more, let me push back a little, maybe you can, you can there are less, um, costly doesn't always mean clinging on to sin. Costly can sometimes mean my family disowns me, or my friends walk away, mm -hmm. um, or I have to actually change my neutral lifestyle, even if it's not sinful, right? So um, you know, I can give you examples. I'm wondering, I'm thinking in particular now where I imagine, Stephen, you have some people at your church who they start coming to city life and they're at one of the elite universities in Boston, and they're thinking, I, if I believe in this, it's putting, think, it's putting these other things at risk. How do you walk through the relational fallout through no fault or intention of the person? They would love to be friends with, with all types of people. But that reality that because we live in this polarized world we live in, and people are put in a box once they start believing a certain thing, that's a cost that's not necessarily sinful. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that gets to, uh, why well, I think that getting to the, you have to get to the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ, right? Before, you don't get somebody like, oh, accept Jesus, and then afterwards, like, oh, by the way, here's the cost that's gonna be in your life, right? You've gotta get there first, before that point. But I don't think you start with it. And, 
And here's the reason. I think because we, we are inherently ha tend towards self-salvation. We inherently look for what is the way that I can justify myself. And when you, if you start out with, here's the costs, here's the things, right? Before you've gotten to the gospel of grace, mm -hmm. then what you're actually, what they hear, what they're going to interpret that as is, okay, here's the things. If I do these things, then therefore I will, I'll be, God will accept me. If, okay, I'm going to need to change my life. Okay, I, I'm willing to do that. So, the, the point of getting to that grace, when you have that point in the conversation where you can say, like, you know, we come to God, and we don't come with him like, oh, here, like, I finally have recognized my, you know, I, I'm humble enough. I finally have recognized my need. I finally have been, you know, open enough. Right? Here's what I'm offering you, God. Is that enough? When you finally get to the point where, like, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer. And then you see what you get back. Okay, now that, that costly, that, the magnitude of that gift and the fact that you've given absolutely nothing for it means, it means then there is nothing that God owes you and there is nothing that God can't ask for you that's completely okay. Now, once you've gotten to that point, then you say, now what does that mean? What would that mean for you in your life then? So now it means the costliness is now you see it in the light of the gospel and the light of the grace and the light of, of like, okay, I should be actually ready to, to if, if that, if this is what it is, am I lose some friends? Okay. That, that's going to suck, but man, it's, it's worth it. And it's not too much for him to ask. Well, part of the thing I also wanted, to, it's not just a conversation that needs to happen. The cost of discipleship for Sam choosing to live a celibate life, I'm single at 42, the cost, and I'm not having sex outside of marriage, that's a cost of discipleship that the church needs to be a family. The church actually needs to take in all these kinds of people yes. that friends are walking yes. away, they're having to live a hard life. If the church is not behaving as a family in a community, like that's a very difficult walk for somebody to say, well, you just need to be obedient and obey the cost of discipleship and good luck with that. You need to say, and come over for dinner and have, you know, be sure. family with us. And I think that's kind of the, yeah, that's, great. that's the beautiful thing I think about. Um, I heard somebody say once they were very well experienced in reaching Muslim people and they said that they were giving training for churches and they said, don't start evangelizing a Muslim unless you've got a spare room that you're prepared for them to move into. In other words, don't start someone down this process if you're not going to then be there for them when, when some of that cost comes. And again, that's where this isn't just an individual exercise. This is something we do as team church, and we kind of pull together on this. So I think you're right. That relational cost should be more than offset by the relational gain that comes by being part of the people of God. Um, I would love, um, and the, I'll do a last question, and then we're not going to do audience Q and R, but we're going to Q and R, but we're going to end. Um, we're going to end a little early, so that y'all do have time to come up and ask questions. The last question I'll ask, because this is actually a really difficult question, is we find um, in our work with students and with different uh, people that we work with having a theoretical conversation about what Christians believe or about the Christian faith is people are generally willing to at least kind of at least patronize you <laughs> to talk about it. But to transition from 
that's that may be true for you to now that's true for me an actual conversion moment if you would is a really big transition how do you guys think um how do you guys move beyond the discussion to actually having like that moment where they actually embrace Jesus for themselves uh, a colleague of mine at Gordon-Conwell Seminary is a New Testament German scholar by the name of Erkhart Schnabel. And he's written a, a really helpful book on Paul the missionary. And in that book, he uses language like point of agreement and point of disagreement, or element of contact mm-hmm. and the element of contradiction. And so he gives examples of Apostle Paul in Lystra in Acts 14, and of course Athens in Acts 17. And he says the brilliance of what Paul does is he obviously finds a point of contact, an element of contact, uh, a place of identification, and he enters into the story, and, and so he'll quote a poet or something like that. But, but the brilliance of what Paul does is that he also provides the point of contradiction or the uh, element of contradiction. But the beauty of what he does is he says the point of contact actually becomes the point of contradiction. Mm. It's kind of apologetic judo. And so not, not, that, not that we want to get involved in a discourse where we're saying, hey, okay, gotcha. That's not the point. But, but what, we, what we're trying to do is as we engage in, in a dialogue, dialogue humbly and, and charitably and, and civilly, that as we do that, that we want to show them that you believe all the assumptions of this particular point of identification, your contact, your place of agreement, your faith assumption. But I want to show you that that there are flaws. There are flaws to this, and it's not really what you think it is. And so if you can find that place, agree with them, and saying, yep, yep, this, the, the Bible has some overlapping uh, themes here, uh, but to be able to find that and then, and then uh, humbly enter into that, and that becomes a point of contradiction, then now you've got an opportunity to be able to shine the gospel in the midst of that because they realize that, uh, some of the foundations that they've had, they have been assuming up, up to that point uh, might not be as uh, solid as they had anticipated. Right. He's pointing out the, the, the cognitive dissonance piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd, I'd say there's also a point of personal pressure. <clears throat> so the 90% of the objections to Christian faith that I hear are kind of intellectual objections. Um, but I'd say that more like 80, 90% of the real objections that are underneath that is some kind of like pastoral personal pain point, some kind of issue there. Um, and so it's very easy to have a, have a conversation with someone at an intellectual, philosophical level, just taking their question at face value. Oh, you have this kind of question. It's like, oh, great. Well, like I've actually just read about that. And here, let me give you some, some points on that. And here's a book to read. And instead of asking, like, oh, that's interesting. Like, how, how, what is that question meant for you? Like, what, have you had an experience with that personally? Or you've had, so that you find out, like, actually what's going on in, within the heart. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, you just, coming to faith is not a, just an intellectual ascent, right? It, it is a, it's a personal encounter with, with Christ. And that, that means that there are these personal things that are underneath any, every kind of question, intellectual objection a person has. Um, and so asking the questions um, to get beyond, beneath that 
to what is going on in the life and the heart of this person and, and saying like, and loving them there and recognizing that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the, the, the truth of who he is and what he, it is the secret <laughs> to all of those things, right? You know, the very thing that they, that they think is, is, is not, that that's what they need. And so if you want to love that person well, then that means not just you know saying at that superficial you know surface intellectual level, but but getting personal with them um, lovingly over time, so that you can really actually have that personal connection interaction. Proverbs twenty verse five says the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And uh, Ravi Zacharias often says, "Don't answer the question, answer the questioner." And the question is often just, like you say, a surface thing. There's often deeper things underneath. So relationship is going to be key for that. I found that there's often been two things that have moved someone from looking at Christianity at an arm's length, abstracty kind of way, to it's becoming now existentially relevant to them. Uh, one is that they see enough of the Christian living their real life as a Christian, and particularly seeing a Christian suffer. So again, this depends on there being a strong relational component to this, but they, they see their Christian friend going through trials with faith in Jesus. And Peter anticipates that, doesn't he? He says, always be prepared to give an answer. I can never remember how this is worded. Um, for the reason of the hope you have. For the reason for the hope that you have. There's something about Christian hope that is going to provoke questions and curiosity because it suddenly gets very ground level and very real at that point. Um, I, I often wonder whether in Ruth chapter 1 where, you know, Naomi is, is kind of, she doesn't look like she's going to be a great Christian witness. She's angry with God. Don't call me this. Call me bitter because God's made me bitter and he's ruined everything. And then somehow Ruth has come to know God. And I wonder if it's because as Naomi was going through all of that, even if she was, you know, being so raw, it, there was no doubt that God was real to Naomi. Uh, the fact that she was kicking against God showed that God was real to her. And I wonder if that was part of what rubbed off on Ruth. Uh, that's one thing, is seeing, seeing Christians actually dealing with uh, the real tough stuff of life, which means that we do need to have a measure of openness and vulnerability ourselves, let people in on what's going on. The second thing is I find that if, if people start reading a gospel... What starts as a, yeah, I'm willing to have a quick look at this just to find out a bit about what you believe. People often find at some point the gospel starts reading them. And I know so many people who started off, I'm going to read this gospel at arm's length. I respect you, I want to understand what you believe, so I'll read this. Me up here and the gospel down there somewhere. And at some point, it's just hard to do that. You know, the Bible is a two-edged sword. It cuts back on us. And we start to realize that Jesus is... He's scrutinizing us. So go and get from the, the bookstore some of those little beautifully produced little gospels that you can give out. I always say to friends, if you've not read a gospel as an adult, I just don't think you're informed enough to reject Christianity or to accept it. And, you know, a little gospel isn't going to intimidate anyone. You don't have to get them the kind of whopping great big study Bible. But a little gospel, you know, that's going to take them... 20 minutes to read or something. But I find that can often be what takes us from being a 
theoretical discussion to a, hang on, this is getting real, which is wonderful. Yeah, there's a scene in A Severe Mercy, if any of you guys have read it, where he becomes a Christian as an adult. And before, in his conversion moment, he's exploring Christianity, he's thinking about it. A lot of his friends are Christians, so he's being introduced to it. And at some point he realizes, yes, there's a gap before me that I have to jump to believe, but there's, I've realized now there's a gap behind me. Now I have to actually reject what I've learned, and I don't think I can do it, so yeah. why not leap? And yeah. I, I think that's such a beautiful thing, because, yeah, yeah, you actually have to have faith to go back at that point. So. Yeah, there's a leap of doubt yeah. now in remaining a non-Christian. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for coming, you guys. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.